Hello and welcome back to the PD Performance Podcast. I've got another solo episode for you guys today on a very complex topic that I get a lot of questions about. And obviously I get a lot of questions about because I talk about it quite a lot and I post about it quite a lot. So what I'm going to be covering today is my process for coaching change of direction and agility. I've started posting more and more about game speed, change of direction and agility training over the last year. And as a result, I've probably got a lot of messages about it. It's probably the vast majority of my messages are in relation to either speed or agility. Questions from other coaches are in regards to this. Questions from athletes are in regards to this. So as usual, I said I'd put my neck on the line and put it out there what I actually do in my coaching process and why I think about it in this way. What is up, guys? This podcast is kindly sponsored by Sam Portland's Sports Speed Certification. Now, that is a tongue twister. Sam is rolling out the certification with the goal to help athletes to find the information around speed coaching and how to implement the practices to improve your athlete speed over time. Sam is also offering all PD Performance listeners a 15% discount on the certification. Just use the code PDPSPEED and message Sam over at sam at coachsportland.co.uk or message him on his social media channels, which are at coachsportland. What you will get access to is all of the materials, videos and guides and tools of how to make your athletes faster. Those are all available online. You will also get access to a free live event Sam is going all over the world, putting in live events and delivering presentations to the number of coaches that is included. And you'll get 15% off the whole lot. As well as that, you'll get a one hour long coaching call with Sam four weeks after the event to follow up so that he can help you to implement the strategies with your athletes and perfect your speed coaching process. So once more, that is PDP speed is your code message Sam get on board and I hope to see you all at an event. Season two of the PD Performance Podcast is kindly sponsored by Output Sports. Output Sports make athlete testing and monitoring simple, portable and efficient. Their single sensor tool enables the measurement of over 160 exercises spanning agility, speed, power, mobility, reactive strength and much more. The tech is utilized by the FA, Leinster Rugby, Limerick Curling, and your very own PD Performance, to name but a few, but also gyms, clinics, and schools around the UK and Ireland, and they're now branching out into the States as well. As a listener of this podcast, you can get 5% off with the code PT5, P-E-T-E-Y 5. So get onto Output Sports as soon as you possibly can, because I am achieving great things with my sensor that I've been using so far this season. I've had great buy-in with my athletes and I've been using that myself too. And I gotta say, it's a lot of fun. So contact Output Sports with code PT5 to avail of your discount. Now, I thought it would be important before I go any further to shout out all of the coaches that have heavily influenced my coaching practice and my coaching system in relation to this, 
because obviously I didn't pull this all out of thin air. There are a number of fantastic senior level coaches that are way, way better than me and have been in the industry much, much longer than me that I feel necessary to give them the kudos for developing their own systems. And then I've been able to take little bits and pieces from each of those like a sponge, sponging it all up, taking what I think is useful for my practice and then releasing whatever isn't. So I'm just going to list them off. Sam Portland, obviously, over in the UK, he has had a great deal of an input into my coaching process and my development. He specializes in speed and agility training as well. And over the many conversations I've had with him, I think I've got a better picture for how I like to approach this area of strength and conditioning. Then Alan Murdoch as well. I love Alan's stuff. Speedworks Bath on Instagram. If you're not following him, maybe give him a follow. Uh, he specializes in game speed, in coaching, change of direction and agility for specifically rugby, but he's working in other sports as well. But he works with Lions, like high level athletes in uh, rugby union. And he is elite. I've been to one of his seminars over in Wasps last year or during the summer, actually. And it was just phenomenal. I love the way he thinks about things. I love the way that he presents it. And I definitely steal a lot from what he does and try to apply it over here to Gaelic games. And then when I am working with rugby athletes as well, I use it as well. And then he has been influenced a lot, as have I, from jo by Jonas Dodu from Speedworks as well. Uh, Jonas has influenced so many of us in relation to how we coach speed and game speed in team sports. Uh, so I think I'll give him a shout out as well as that then Graham Morris, who I've had on the podcast. Great guy. He thinks about things really rationally, I would say. And he has a good way of delivering that information in terms of like he always moves what I'm going to touch on later on general to specific close to open and I like how he builds up his drills and how he builds up his games as well and applies them to a rugby league and a rugby union context, as well as many other sports too. Then Justin Lang down in Sydney, I believe as well. I was influenced by him a lot when I was over in Singapore. I like his stuff and how he coaches rugby athletes in relation to perception and action, as well as gamifying drills. I really like that approach. And then Jeffrey Moyer in the States, who has done some great work in relation to perception and action, as well as like the process of visual scanning and visual awareness and how that applies to improving athletes in regards to their agility actions or change of direction actions and how it applies to improving their performance on the field. Like it's direct transfer and it's not really talked about or thought about very often. So I love his stuff. Um, have taken a lot from him as well. So I'm going to talk a bit about how I've developed my process in over the last few years. And then I'm going to go through how I walk through the process, I suppose, and the many stages that I have. I have about eight stages that I'm going to go through from building from completely general movement skills in a closed environment to match play or games, uh, scenarios type stuff. And I will go through that later on. But before that, it's probably useful to go through why I have that process in place and why I think about it the way that I do. Now, due to the fact that I've been posting quite a lot about change of direction over the last few months, and I've been posting closed change of direction drills, 
people kind of probably expect that that's all that I do is close drills. But it, if you talk to any of my athletes, it's absolutely not. We do the close drills mainly at the start of the season. And I think doing close change of direction drills definitely has merit, especially with youth athletes and especially early in the season. Because if we're to look at agility and change of direction and the differences between them, change of direction is obviously just changing your direction of intent of which you want to go from one to the other. No stimulus involved, no reaction involved. It's just your ability to change direction and go the opposite direction. In relation to agility, it's obviously your ability to move quickly and respond to the environment in which you're placed. So you're responding to a stimulus in front of you. So you have to be able to scan take in the information that's presented to you and react at the right time, but also react quickly. So that's why change of direction drills probably do translate to agility type drills in that you can improve your ability to move quickly. But you also, if you're going to have to, or you're going to want to improve your ability to be agile in a game context, you're also going to have to improve your ability to respond to the stimulus. So that is, take in the information and then respond to it effectively. So in a way, by starting initially with the change of direction drills, you may have a transfer over into improving agility. But if you just throw athletes into agility and allow them to figure out for themselves, some of them will figure it out and some of them will benefit from doing so. But a lot of them won't as well. And that's probably where you look at like the elite performers are so far removed from the other performers because they have a natural tendency or if they've been exposed to a high level of those environments or exposed to those environments of chaos quite frequently and they've experimented a lot so then they've come to their own conclusions and now they're competent in it so they don't have to think about it they just respond but there's a big difference between them and then the lowest athletes in that pack which is the athlete that hasn't done any specific work on it so obviously if we want to take them closer to that level it may be of benefit to break down the skill and work on the skill in isolation initially which is why i believe given all of the athletes the same advantage of breaking down the skill and the same opportunities to improve in relation to their change of direction ability is important which is why we work on it so that is why we work on improving movement skills, which it really applies to strength and conditioning as a whole, because that's what we're trying to do. We're always trying to improve movement skills. Even the strength and conditioning coaches that would argue that I'm overstepping the mark by going into the field of play and working on the movement skills that directly correlate to performance in the game. They would not argue that within the confines of the four wall gym that they stay in because they think they need to stay in their lane. They would not argue that we're that we're not trying to improve uh, movement skills in that environment, because that's exactly what we're trying to do all the time, improve movement skills. So if we can improve movement skills within the confines of the gym, then we need to be able to improve them out of it as well, because that's what we're trying to do when we're working with athletes. We're trying to improve performance in the sport, not just performance in the gym. So that's why I think it's very important that strength and conditioning coaches become proficient in coaching movement skills, both in the gym and on the field. And there is a transfer of 
your communication in terms of your cues and your coaching eye if you do that more frequently and I'm always grateful to Daniel Moore who I better shout out as well he was my first ever mentor in Blackrock College he's working with Lansdowne Rugby Club he's been a guest on the podcast um, he won't hear this at all because he's a social media ghost but he was the first one that said to me in one of the first months during my internship he said do you want to take a speed session? And my first session was a speed session. And I said, I don't know if I'd be comfortable doing that. I've never coached it before. And he said, well, I'd advise that you get comfortable doing it because that's the way the industry is going. And that's what directly transfers to the sport. So I think it would be wise to invest some time in learning in that area. And that was really what started me on my journey. So thanks to Dan, even though he's not going to hear this. And if you go to follow him, you won't find him anywhere. <laughs> He used to be on LinkedIn, but I think he even packed that in at this stage. Uh, and maybe he's right, you know. Um, he's flying up with Lansdowne, he's flying up with Blackrock, and he has a young family, so he's splitting his time a lot better than I am, I'm sure. But anyway, so shout out to Dan, and that's what got me started in thinking about, right, well, maybe I do need to develop the skills to coach in that scenario. And I always loved coaching rugby as well. Even before I was a strength and conditioning coach, I was coaching underage rugby and I, I loved it, that process. So then I started see, see I started to see the link behind how I could link coaching the game and coaching the skills of the game and then coaching the movement skills on the field from an SNC point of view and then try to kind of link them together. And I think that's the way that sports performance and coaching is moving like even if you look at eddie jones and many sports coaches they're now getting more of an understanding for how strength and conditioning and performance coaches think about performance and they're understanding the principles of performance from that standpoint and i think in the future it's going to be you're going to specialize for sure and you're going to have a specialty but i think sports coaches are going to have a better appreciation for what a performance coach or a training conditioning coach does and vice versa as well i think it's going to be necessary so that's why it's important to understand the game that you're coaching and obviously i've played gaelic games from a young age i've played rugby probably taking it more serious and more into my adulthood so when I started coaching Gaelic games again I started having to analyze the game a little bit more because the game has progressed an awful lot so that has helped me to develop the drills and the skills and be able to apply the drills and the skills that I'm using to the game and make them more specific to the game because they have to be specific to the game if we're going to develop the athlete general qualities you can improve but the general qualities must also be specific to the game. What do I mean by that? So I would say a general quality would be speed over off the mark or acceleration off the mark, but it definitely applies to the game in a specific context, context as well because you're going to have to accelerate off the mark in the game. That's what I mean. So we reverse engineer the sport, as we always say, but there's no point in developing physical qualities that don't apply to the sport, even if those physical qualities are general. I hope I'm making sense there. I may not be, but that's what I'm trying to do. And that's why the podcast gives me the vehicle over which to analyze my own thoughts and think about how I'm thinking about things. So to take it back then, if we are to improve in relation to change of direction technique, initially, I would suggest we do so 
with very little stimuli or no stimuli at all. So that's no stressors, so nothing to react to. Because especially with youth athletes and actually adult athletes as well, when you throw in too many stressors, they will forget completely about everything that you have been teaching them in relation to movement skills because they are not yet competent in the movement skill and it is not yet an unconscious action. And they are also inherently competitive as well. So they're initially thinking, how do I win in this scenario or how do I not lose in this scenario? Probably more appropriately, probably that's where their ego lies and that's what they're thinking about more often than not is I can't lose this rather than I have to win this. And that's what we're trying to improve and change in relation to their mentality. But to go back to the movement skills. So in relation to movement skills, you're going to have various stages of competence. So as I just touched on there, initially when teaching a skill, you're going to be unconsciously incompetent in that you can't execute the skill effectively and you don't know how to execute the skill effectively. After a little bit of coaching, a little bit of trial, you may become consciously incompetent. That means that now you know what you need to do in order to execute the skill effectively, but you cannot do so effectively and consistently. After some more trial and error and more exposure to that environment and trying to execute it effectively, then you may become consciously competent where you can execute the skill effectively, but you have to think about it a lot when you're doing it. And finally, if you do that, probably takes years and years and years, then you become unconsciously competent in that you don't need to think about what you're doing and you will always, well, not always, but most of the time, at least greater than 66% of the time, you are effective and you are successful in executing that skill well, uh, to the desired outcome. And that would be where you describe guys like David Clifford and Shane Walsh and Jordan Larmer and all these world-class athletes who are incredibly good in specific scenarios because they've been exposed to it many, many times. And if you ask them, what did you do there? They'll say, oh, I don't know. They wouldn't be able to describe it because they're not even thinking about it. It's just unconscious. It's just instinctive and that's where people think that that's been developed by itself sure it has with this athlete but they've been exposed to a number of different environments and at some stage in their athletic career they were thinking about what they were doing and they did that so much that eventually it was just the motor pattern was ingrained and then they could just do it without even thinking and that's when they get to that world class or elite level and that's what we are striving to get to. We want to get to that level of unconscious competence. Now, not everybody's going to get to a world-class elite level, but we still want them to be able to execute the skill without thinking about it. And that is the goal as a coach. You want them to be able to do so and not have to focus intently on it so that they can think about the tactical elements of the game that are going to lead to success. So that is the stages of competence that I was alluding to. And 
that's important to understand so that you can apply what I'm talking about in relation to agility training to that. As well as that, you can take into account the stages of motor learning. And that's something that Sam Portland, probably he is heavy on as well. And he talks about he talks about the cognitive stage initially, which is what we we're talking about, where you're thinking about it, but you can't yet execute it or you're seeking to understand how you can do it. Then if you're given the necessary coaching or you're expose the environments in which you can develop then you'll figure out what it is you're trying to do and what you have to do to achieve success and that's the associative stage so there's three stages in this and then finally you're in the autonomous stage which is where you can execute it effectively and expertly and you don't need to think about it so that's similar to the unconscious competence stage of uh, the stages of competence that I just talked about now that's enough in terms of the theory of motor learning and the theory of the psychology of teaching, et cetera, and learning, because that might make it a little bit too complicated for people. And they might be just asking, right, Peter, I just want to hear what you do and why you're doing closed drills and how you build that back up to the game and what's in the middle, because you don't post that much about what's in the middle on Instagram and TikTok. And I'm going to get better at doing that, but it's, very hard to record the specific drills and games that we do in team training sessions because I don't like pulling the camera out too much in those team training sessions because the focus of the team training sessions is improving the team and improving the athletes. So I don't want to be worrying about whether we're getting good shots or whether the camera is out. Whenever I do get that, I just kind of leave it down by the side and get whatever I can get out of it. Um, but I will try and do that a little bit more often now because we're focused on maybe developing coaches a little bit more and giving athletes the tools to how they can improve their performance. And if I'm going to do that, I need to have the video because that's how we all communicate these days is online and they need to be able to see it. And from what I'm speaking about here, the podcast format may not be the best way to show you guys how I do so. Uh, true words because some people are visual learners and they need to be able to see it as well as hear about it so I will link some of my YouTube videos in the show notes for this episode so that you get a good feel for what I am doing and how I progress the my training system in relation to change of direction and agility but the big mistakes that I see and maybe it's a case that I just see it as well as what other people would see on my page and they take from that that I'm only doing closed drills and that's it and it's not specific to the game but I see lots of people that do training with their athletes at both sides of the agility change of direction spectrum so closed drills at this side to one side of it and then towards the other side is the gameplay where there's many stressors and it's a real chaotic environment and I think we miss out the middle quite a bit so I think if we are going to improve performance and be comfortable in the control we have over improving performance and seeing athletes improving performance as they go and them seeing themselves improve performance as they go, then I think we need to break it down even further and break it down into movements first 
and then into scenarios and then following that into match play. Because I think it's a little bit risky or uncontrolled to just throw them into match play or small sided games and say, figure it out. And I think they will figure out a lot of things, but they won't get the necessary exposure to the environments and the scenarios that they'll be presented with on the field that they will move from that unconscious incompetence phase to the conscious incompetence and then following that your conscious competence stage I don't think they're getting exposure to those scenarios enough on a weekly basis like as Alan said in the game speed workshop he was speaking to some of his athletes who are playing at a really high level uh, rugby union so professional environment and he asked them how often would you be exposed to a one-on-one scenario on the wing in a week of training and it was probably two or three times in a training session, maybe three times a week, and that was it. So that's nine exposures per week. Whereas if you break it down and give them the opportunity to improve upon that again and again and again, then they're going to get more opportunities to improve. And then hopefully within those nine uh, opportunities, they'll be more effective and efficient. But as well as that, in the one that counts on the weekend, the one exposure to that scenario on the weekend, they'll be more likely to be effective and efficient in that scenario. And I think that's a really useful way of thinking about things. Because if I ask my Gaelic football athletes, how many times are you exposed to a one-on-one on the wing in a training session? It might be the same. It could be probably a little bit more, but for a corner forward, they could be exposed to that scenario maybe five times, six times in a training session. They're only training twice a week. So it's similar. It's about 10 times in a week. Whereas if we added in a little bit of a microdose at the start of the session in terms of one-on-one scenarios and beating defenders or creating scoring opportunities, or even for defenders in tracking attackers, then that's another opportunity to improve. And in my 10-minute window for warm-up, if I can do repeated exposures to those time and time again, they'll probably get... 10 exposures in that warm-up even five to ten so you're already doubling the amount of exposures to that scenario that they will get on that weekly basis and then hopefully by doing that you're doubling the chance that they will improve at effectively executing within that scenario at the weekend and i hope that makes sense so i think that that's what we miss is we start at the start and then we skip right to the end and sometimes we start at the start and we go one step into the agility change of direction spectrum and then we do a little bit there we do a lot there and then we leave it there and we don't progress it anymore and this is what kind of gets you in trouble as a strength and conditioning coach sometimes not me now because my sports coaches are really receptive and they give me full autonomy really to do all this stuff and they can see how it applies to the game because they allow me to have an input into these change of direction and movement skills but sometimes Sports coaches or skills coaches could be a little bit or have a little bit of a scarcity mindset and feel like you're stepping on their toes a little bit. But I think that's the way it's moving is skills coaches, maybe performance coaches in the future or strength and conditioning coaches. I think you need to have an understanding of the game if you're going to be effective in your coaching. So I'm going to go into the process, basically, of how I think about it. And before I go into the process, though, it's important to understand what I was alluding to earlier in relation to Jeffrey Moyer and in relation to perception and action. 
that is the difference and that is the difference maker in that perception plus action equals success or equals agility so you need to be able to perceive what's happening and then you need to act effectively on it and select the right tool that you have in your toolbox or the right movement skill to, to be successful and achieve your desired outcome in that scenario and I know I'm going to talk about rugby here because that's what I'm familiar with but that might be you know, when you're in rugby and you're in a one-on-one scenario and you are going down the wing and your defender is coming across at high speed. So you make the decision because you perceive him coming across at high speed. There's not a lot of space on the outside. So you make the decision, right, I'm going to step inside on him. Say he's coming from your right. I'm going to step inside on my left and then accelerate away. So you do a left foot step to the inside and accelerate away. And eventually, you won't even need to think about that. You'll just see him coming, step, bang, gone. And it's the same thing in a GA context in that you are a left foot kicker and he's coming from left to right and he's coming really fast at you. So you throw a little dummy on your right, back to the left, knock it over the bar. And that's what we're talking about. That becomes non-conscious eventually because you're exposed to that time and time again. So you are able to perceive that with your vision, your spatial awareness, uh, your awareness of the game scenario, your, you've been exposed to that scenario time and time again. And as a result, you can achieve success in it more often than not because you've been presented with it time and time again. And that's graded exposure to the stimulus. So we start with a small stimulus or, yeah, or small stimulus or a small amount of stimuli, and then we consistently add more and more stimuli and more and more intensity and more and more chaos to the environment so that we can continually challenge the athlete so that they can learn and they can be effective in that environment and then eventually you're to gameplay and that's what we're going to talk about now so we're moving from simple to complex movement patterns so your simple might be like a lateral shuffle and your complex might be an acceleration into a sidestep, into uh, an acceleration again. And then you're moving from a closed environment to an open environment. So that's with no stimuli. So you're just doing a lateral shuffle or a sidestep with nobody telling you when to do it, how to do it. Uh, nobody, nobody having an input or there's no win or loss in that to a more open environment where there's defenders and you're being challenged and you have to there's a clear identification of what is success and what is failure in that scenario. And then you're moving from general to specific. So obviously you can see how a general movement skill is general, but then a specific skill in a specific scenario on the field of play is specific. So initially, as I said, you're going to focus on general movement execution. So that's when we break down the movements. So if we were to go into change of direction, and I think it's Tom Dos Santos and a couple of others. Damien Harper, is it? No, it's, it's not Damien, but it's Harper. I have done some great research. I think they were working over in Manchester and they've done great research into movement skills in relation to change of direction. And they break it down into you have a side step, you have a crossover step, you have deceleration, you have a shuffle step, and you have, there's probably one, there's seven, I think. 
but I'm mixing up some of them now. Uh, if you have a look on my page, I have posted a lot about a lot of them. There's a split step as well, actually, when the athlete jumps into the air, lands, and then goes in a, in a direction. So they have their feet outside their center of mass, and that's that change of direction triangle that Kerwin and Flat is always talking about. And that is a useful way of thinking about it because you're figuring out what you're looking for, what are the key performance indicators, the KPIs for effective change of direction technique. So initially, once you know those KPIs, you can attempt to coach them and teach them in a closed context where the athlete is afforded the opportunity to just work on the execution. They're given the coaching cues and the KPIs themselves so they understand what we're looking for, but they're not reacting to a defender or an attacker. There's no win or loss. It's just execute this movement and see how it feels. And then after you've done that, which you will do with youth athletes, or you may do at the start of the season, then you go general movement execution in response to a stimulus. Now, the stimulus could be an auditory stimulus. It could be a visual stimulus. It could be responding to the coach. It could be responding to the athlete, but it will be a specific skill that you've picked. So you're picking one skill and they should try to execute this skill in response to that stimulus. Now, that could be starting them in a side-on position and they're reacting to another athlete that's sprinting at them. And when that athlete starts sprinting, they can use a crossover step to go into an acceleration and accelerate away. So there is, in a way, a success and failure in this, in that you're challenging the athlete and you're gamifying it a little bit. And you do that, we do that in relation to our speed and our linear speed drills. We will always do chasing games. And you can do the same in relation to change of direction ones. You just need to modify the environment and use cones and poles and whatnot for them to go around. And they're responding to either you as a coach or they're in a race responding to the auditory or a visual stimulus. And like you raise a cone or you raise a hand and they react to that. But that's very general. It's not specific to the game. And but this affords them the opportunity to work on the movement skill and still increases the intensity because athletes are competitive by nature, as I just said. But then after that, if we are going to work on the movement skill and we're integrating a few movements together, I like to put in a passive defender. So I call this a semi-open or semi-closed, depending on how you look on it, uh, environment. And I make this kind of specific scenario focus. So in terms of a rugby context, you might think it's a specific scenario in that you have an athlete a defender running at one athlete and the attacker is running and trying to get past the defender. So similar to what happens on the field of play, or you could have a defender coming from the side and the athlete has to try and step inside them, but you will tell them how you want them to beat this defender. And you will tell the defender that they are passive. So they're not actually defending. They're just providing the visual stimulus for the athlete to get used to that visual stimulus and reacting to it with a certain movement pattern. And if you do that again and again, then hopefully they will ingrain that movement pattern. It will become more comfortable for them and then they'll be more likely to do so on the field of play. And this is something that I would have found really useful when I was younger because I'm going to toot my own horn here now, but I had quite a good right foot step. But when I was at going for an athlete or going at a defender, 
I would say after a while, they knew I was going to take them out to my right, to their left, because I wanted to step off my right because I was more effective stepping off my right to the inside. And then if I wanted to go around the left, I would usually do a goose step. But my deceleration ability and my ability to sidestep off my left wasn't as good. So I would always try to go to the right because that's what I had become proficient at doing during my youth athletic development because I'd never been exposed to trying to do it on my left side. So I'd left that capability or that movement skill untrained. And as a result, it wasn't as good as the other side. And that limited my effectiveness as an athlete because the defender could have a fair idea where I was going to go. And don't get me wrong, some athletes get away with having an amazing step off one side and none off the other, but it's a lot harder. Whereas if you're able to step off both feet and beat defenders or track attackers off both feet, it will be useful for you as an athlete because you will be comfortable in any scenario. So that's why we do this. We expose them to this scenario again and again and again so that we are leaving no stone unturned and so that they are working off both Uh, sides and so that they can become effective off both sides so again it's specific to the scenario in that they're learning to recognize the pattern in front of their face and then react to that effectively and i have a few examples and i'll link them in the youtube uh, in the show notes i'll link the youtube video in the show notes for you to have a look at and you'll have an idea of what i'm looking for in that scenario and hopefully it'll help you and obviously i don't actually have any videos on GAA in terms of passive defenders, but I'll try and get some before the end of the year so that you can have a look at them and you can try and incorporate them into your training next year. So moving from that, then in terms of it's a non-competitive environment to an extent, we're moving to attack favorite drills and games in a specific scenario. So now we are playing to the athlete's competitive side and we are making it a game and we're going to keep the score. I always like to keep the score in these games because that's what's going to drive the competitiveness and that's what's going to drive the intensity. It's amazing because athletes are innately competitive. It's amazing what gamifying it or adding in a scoreline will do. Like even if you go back to cool camps and you go back to uh, summer camps, I don't know if it's the same elsewhere, but in Ireland we have the game Rats and Rabbits and you could play that with a group of six-year-olds and they'll still enjoy it because one side is the rats, one is the rabbits and you call rats and they have to sprint away and you call rabbits and they have to sprint away and you could spend about 20 minutes at a cool camp or a summer camp doing that with kids and they won't get tired of it. And that's because they're innately competitive as well. We all like to win and we all don't like to lose. So by playing into that, but favoring the attack in this scenario, you can get some great outcomes in terms of now applying the movement skills that you've used when you had a passive defender, but applying them in a competitive context. So how do we favor the attack? We may move the cone or move the start point for the defender out a bit so that they are going into overspeed or they're going at a higher velocity than the attacker so that they have to slow down to stop the attacker and the attacker has more of a decision-making capability and more ability to wrong foot the defender. Or likewise, you could start the attacker at a higher speed to get away from the defender and make it easier for them to get away from the defender. Or this is something that I took from Justin Lang. 
is you could favor one side or the other in terms of the scoring system. So maybe if the attacking team achieves a win or achieves the desired outcome, they get two points or one point. And if the defender wins, they just prevent a point for the attacking side. So because people are innately have a distaste for losing, they're going to try really, really hard to prevent a point. And hopefully then they will go at a higher velocity and they will uh, then be easier to beat as an attacker. So as well as that, what I find useful, especially in team sports, is putting the athletes into teams and scoring for the team because you will have some athletes who like team-focused drills in terms of they're competitive in a team environment, and then you'll have more individually focused or individualistic athletes who are just interested well not just but more interested in beating that defender in a one-on-one and keeping the score with that defender and their own score so they're winning not the team so you're catering for both by putting the athletes into teams and there are tons of different ways you can do this but i'd probably go 1v1 for most of these drills and we do gate games we do races past cones we do attackers trying to score through uh, a specific um, gate or a goal uh, and there are loads of different variations you can do and you can build using these principles for yourselves but then after we do that then we move to one-on-one drills and games in a specific scenario but now we are not favoring the defender or the attacker now it's an equal playing field and they have to try and beat each other in relation to that so now there is no unequal scoring pattern. Uh, it's the same score for both, same kind of distance for start positions. And uh, now it's getting really competitive and it's getting really challenging. And as a result, they're not going to be thinking as much about the way that they're moving or the moving pattern because they're only going to be interested in winning, which is good as well, because that's what we're interested in as an athlete. But that is why it is probably not useful to start here. And I think a lot of people do start here and this is all they do for agility and change of direction, but they have missed out on a lot because they haven't actually focused on developing the movement skills necessary to be effective in this scenario. So when an athlete is thrown in here, they don't think about it and they don't have the skills to do so. They just try and figure it out and they go all out and they don't think about it and unfortunately they're probably less likely to achieve success as a result at least in my opinion following that we'll go to team scenario type drills and games so now rather than it being 1v1 and maybe like a 2v1 so two attackers versus one defender get the ball from here to there or get past this defender or and then you build like that from 2v1 to maybe 3v1 or 3v2 5v2, 5v3, 5v4. And I think rugby is really good at doing that. I, I see it less so in terms of uh, GAA, but it is changing. And I think it is useful to, over the course of a season, have, or over the course of a week, have specifically focused games and drills or a focus point for the session in that this session we really need to improve our attack in this scenario. So let's give them more players so that they can be they have more chance of being effective and then maybe we want to improve them when they're down players or we want to improve the defense so then we give the defense more players and they have the advantage in terms of that so that they have 
more chance of achieving success. And it's useful to play around with that. And then that is still movement skills as well, because the whole game is movement skills. Your ability to move on the on the field of play and your ability to execute um, the skills of the game effectively is what's going to determine success and failure in the game. So following that, it's not that far of a jump to move to small-sided drills and games. And small-sided drills and games, I think, like, everybody's bigging them up lately, but there's a small amount of people that are saying, no, I don't really think we should be doing them. I think we should be favouring um, scenario-type stuff. And you'll always have people in both camps. I think... A rational person would use elements of everything, but I like a games-based approach, to be honest, in terms of developing the skills of the game as well as developing conditioning specific to the game and in developing the individual's players, the individual player's ability to react and respond to necessary scenarios. And you can put so many different constraints on the game, so many different rules on the games that can lead you to improving the amount of scenarios of a specific nature that present themselves to the athletes in the games. As an example, like in terms of rugby union, you could say like easy, you could just do uh, a touch game where they have to offload on every touch and they only get six touches. You could do a tackle touch where on every touch they have to get a tackle in and then rook so that they're getting exposure to uh, contact in a small intensity or low intensity one-on-one scenario so they're getting exposure to tackling but it's controlled you could add a rook to that as well and an ability to compete for the ball so that every single rook there's a competition for the ball if you want to um, improve the team's ability to uh, be effective in that scenario as well as that if you do tackle touch and you say right you can beat your man one-on-one they're getting repeated exposure to one-on-one uh, drills in terms of trying to beat uh, an, a, a defender uh, and they're getting exposure as a defender to one-on-one drills in terms of trying to take down an attacker. So you could do something similar, I would say, in GAA, but I haven't overset my mark into uh, implementing uh, rules into the sports-sided games just yet, and I don't think I will. I think I'll leave that to the, G- the Gaelic football coaches and the hurling coaches. That's none of my business um, because they know what skills and technical skills the teams need to improve upon i have less of an idea or an understanding of that and you could do that across the board if you are interested in my approach to games-based coaching for rugby then just drop me a dm on it i'd be happy to help but finally the last stage the eighth stage is match play and once we get the match play then it's just all in and it's just let's see how we go and let's let the athletes figure it out for themselves and we can sure pull them in and have a, a small input in terms of communication and see what and imparting what we're seeing and what may imp- impact and improve upon the team. But match play in train, we probably for most of it should be just leaving them figure it out for themselves, leaving them make mistakes, leaving them achieve success. And then that's how they develop. They need to figure it out for themselves. We don't want to overcoach them. We want to empower them as athletes to make the right decision, but be okay making the wrong decision at times because that is the aim of the game. We want them to be able to react and respond on the field themselves, not have us having to tell them what to do. And that's where the crossover comes from being a sports coach over to a performance or SNC coach. So I think that kind of sums it up. Um, but I know I've been rambling off. I hope I've been 
somewhat coherent in what I am talking about there. If you are interested, I did write a blog piece. I'd say it's about two months ago at this stage, but it's on my website, pdperformance.com. And uh, it's titled What Coaches Get Wrong About Agility. And it's probably a little bit coherent and a little bit clear in terms of how I approach agility and change of direction training. If you have any questions for me specifically, then feel free to drop me an email, drop me a message on any of my social media channels. I'd be happy to help and happy to respond and hopefully help you to improve either your coaching or improve your performance as an athlete. And if you're interested in doing any change of direction or agility focused training or any physical training with myself, I have a small number of spaces left on my individualized coaching service, but feel free to reach out if you are interested in having a a conversation about that. I would be happy to help. But other than that, I hope that you've gained something from this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. And as always, if you did enjoy it, please remember to like it, share it and send it.